your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, some of you will uh, gather with extended families today, some of those extended families are here this morning, and some of those uh, extended families will be forced to perform the ancient tiptoe dance of avoiding politics. There are some of you I know that are too combative to avoid this, and you will find Christmas dinner the perfect time to share your thoughts on the deep state. Now, I was thinking this week that if you're, uh, if you're looking for a conversational, provocative stocking stuffer, you could, uh, you could get a peach and some Tic Tacs, and you could stuff ornamentally the Tic Tacs in the peach all around and then wrap it in cellophane and then put it in someone's stocking. When they open it up, they'll ask, what is this? And you can say, this is an impeachment. And you can have, the conversation can go from there. Well, the, the truth is, is that uh, Christmas is a profoundly political event. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're wondering if that's true, just ask King Herod, right? <laughs> or ask Isaiah, who said in chapter 9 of his great prophecy, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This idea of Jesus' kingship comes through in our text uh, in Acts 3 as well. If you've opened your Bibles to that chapter, look at verse 19. Peter is speaking to a crowd of people gathered in astonishment over a miracle they just saw. Peter is letting them know, hey, it's, it's not because of our power or piety that this man has been healed. Uh, let me tell you about the one who, whose power and piety enabled the miracle you observe. He calls them in verse 19 to repent. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So that's where we're going to camp out this morning. What does that mean? What kind of promise is Peter issuing forth in those two verses? Well, the first thing I think that's probably pretty clear and pretty great is, the, is a personal promise. He tells the crowd that if they repent and turn, their sins will be blotted out, and God will send them the presence of Jesus. I think it's safe to say the Spirit. God will send them Jesus, and times of personal refreshing will occur. But the next verse, I don't know, a little bit more confusing. It says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things 
about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what you've got here, at bare minimum, is Jesus in two places. You've got Jesus reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and you've got Jesus being sent, the presence of Jesus being sent to those who repent and turn and receive him by faith. Now, let's, what do you make of that? Like, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things built into that idea that we've got Jesus in two different places. Physically, he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. Spiritually, he's also with each believer who trusts in him. So what do you, what do you make of that? Well, last week, um, I, I should review a little bit of last week. We had a pretty low crowd here last week. It, it snowed two inches, and apparently a lot of you have really bald tires and only own motorcycles. Um, no, <laughs> just fine. Uh, Uh, But I should review, because we didn't have many people, and this sermon ties directly into that sermon. Uh, What we have in this idea of Jesus being both high and low, being both transcendent and imminent, is what we were talking about last week. The transcendence and imminence of God. The reign of Jesus is both cosmic and big, and it's, it's, it's personal and small. Um, this kind of high, low, uh, cosmic, personal, big, small kind of deal shows up in the text itself earlier in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. You see uh, in verse 14, Jesus is called the holy and righteous one. Doesn't get much higher than that. Well, maybe one step. Verse 15, the author of life. So what you have in those Verses is this very cosmic, transcendent, glorious image of Jesus. At the same time, in the same passage, we see Jesus described as a servant. We see Jesus described as a suffering servant who suffered the most humiliating kind of death imaginable. So you've got this picture of Jesus that is wholly uh, diverse and unified. Jonathan Edwards, as we said last week, talked about this as an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. And what he meant by that is simply, Jesus is composed in such a way that he is all of the things we think are contradictory in a single person, namely the big and the glorious and the small and the humble, the powerful and the meek. And Edwards is astonished by this, and he, he preaches this theme pretty uh, repeatedly. And he would kind of think, I think he would say, this is something like symmetry. This is something like symmetry. His favorite proof text for this Jesus who is both transcendent and imminent is Revelation chapter 5. Where you see an image of Jesus as both a lion and a lamb. That's Jonathan Edwards' favorite way of describing this conjunction of diverse excellencies. You see the transcendent and the imminent together. So you see, for instance, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. You see reverence toward God while being equal with God. You see a man who is infinitely deserving of good being done for him while he is infinitely patient of evil being done to him. 
you see exceeding obedience coupled with supreme dominion, absolute sovereignty with perfect resignation, self-sufficiency with complete dependence on God. You see this beautiful, otherly combination of diverse qualities which we think, in our human experience, must surely be incompatible with one another. That's certainly our experience as we navigate this life. We are, like, John, like, like Martin Luther said, the drunk man on the horse. It falls to the left, overcorrects and falls to the right. That's how you would probably describe our politics. That's how you would probably describe our personal stories. Overcorrection, seeking for the elusive balance between things like strength and love, things like truth and love, things like kindness and convictions. And we're just all over the map. But Jesus isn't. Jesus is not only the possessor of all of these qualities, but he is the fountainhead, the creator of all these qualities. And they all exist in perfect harmony in him. And I don't even think saying harmony is the right way to say it. I think we're looking at that from a human perspective. I just don't know how else to communicate it. So we saw last week that all of these diverse excellencies in Jesus permeates everything he does, every page of the Gospels. There's another test, another opportunity for Jesus to prove that he was just faking being patient or that he was just faking being strong. Over and over again, page after page, we see, no, this really, really is him. You know, the incarnation, even the incarnation reveals this surprising, delightful, glorious mixture of qualities. I mean, there's really, there's only one more time in Jesus's life where he is more humiliated, I think, and that being the cross. But this moment in which Jesus, God of very God, takes on flesh, that's, that's pretty humble. But even in this tiny, tiny fragile, humble, weak state, the glory of God keeps bursting forth, like right through all of that humility and meekness and smallness. You know, a good way to describe this would just be picture that one moment when you've got angels singing over shepherds. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's the, that's the whole deal in one picture. Grimy, low-grade shepherds with Shekinah glory bursting above them and speaking to them. So, I mean, you know, the Christmas story is just full of these, these moments that are just honestly kind of grimy. You know, there's a lot of parts of the Christmas story, including a birth, which are, which are well, let's just say crude. But in all of those moments of weakness and meekness and humility, glory just keeps showing up. And in all of the moments that we see of Jesus where the glory is predominant, think the Mount of Transfiguration, for instance, all of these moments that predominate with the, with the shiny, with the big, with the majestic, you see a humble person, truly humble, truly kind, truly patient. Jesus is this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He is transcendent, over and above, and imminent with and so when we see in peter's description of jesus the idea that he is in two places at once 
Well, that's not a problem. He's God. Uh, but, but, but more than that, that he is both ruling at the throne of God, ruling in the heavens, and also like coming to you when you're really sorry because you sinned. And putting his hand on your shoulder and telling you that he loves you. One of the things Peter's doing is he's showing us this Jesus. This Jesus is amazing. Christmas is, is, is a perfect time to think about these things. You know, one of the famous moments in Narnia, among many, is when Lucy says in the last battle, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That's the mystery and the glory of Jesus and his transcendence and his eminence. Now let's go back to that statement that Peter makes and ask, okay, um, we've got Jesus in heaven and we've got Jesus going in his spiritual presence to individual believers. What, what's going on here? Why is he doing this? You know, another way to ask this, and I think I asked this when I was younger, why, why did Jesus have to go to heaven? Why couldn't he just hang out here and do Jesus stuff? What's the point of the ascension? The text says that heaven must receive him. That this is a necessary piece of God's redemptive work. Why is that? Well, let's ask first of all, what is he doing in heaven and then why, why, why does he have to go there? Well, the Bible says that Jesus ascended to heaven to rule over all things. Why is Jesus in heaven now? The answer I might tell my you know, six-year-old is because that's where the throne is. Think of heaven as the capital city. Hebrews tells us that all that is visible was created and is governed by all that is invisible. So Jesus has gone to heaven because that's where the throne is. And he's gone to heaven to sit on that throne because he must, the Bible says must, rule there until all of his enemies are made his footstool. So what's he doing in heaven? He's ruling. Why is he there? Because that's where the throne is. Hebrews ten twelve says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made the footstool for his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, For he must reign there until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. So when Peter says in, in, in chapter 3 of Acts, that he must be in heaven, heaven must receive him until the restoration of all things. He's referencing this idea of Jesus reigning from heaven over all things, all things physical, all things spiritual, and doing so until all of his enemies are subdued. Third question, well, third point. This reign of Jesus's is real and it's really working. So we've got this idea so far, and I think it's fair to say this. It's, it's, a little, it's a little crude, but I think it's right that Jesus comes into our hearts and reigns in the throne there, right? That's a familiar story, our familiar 
language that we've heard before. I don't think there's anything wrong with that language. Uh, Bible says, for instance, let the peace of heart, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And you know, the, the, the idea works at some level. The image in, 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 in these verses is that, <laughs> is that Jesus is, is occupying your heart, your throne. He's the Lord of your life. And he is also Lord over all things. Uh, in my prayer, I quoted, though I did not attribute the quote, uh, I, I quoted a man named Abraham Kuyper, who said, there is not a single square inch over which, uh, a, a single square inch of creation over which Christ does not cry, mine. And, you know, like that's true at this meta, mac, uh, macro, cosmic level. It's all his, he's ruling it all. And it's also true at a personal level. I was thinking uh, earlier that, you know, some of us have more square inches than others. But Christ rules them all. They're all his. So you got this idea that Jesus is, is reigning in two places, both at the low level of my dingy little self and also at the high cosmic level. Now, what I want to think about for a minute is what happens when an individual Christian, a lot of you have been Christians for a while, what happens when an individual Christian begins to sort of neglect the lordship of Jesus? What does that look like when they maybe say, you know, Jesus is a great savior, but I really don't want him pulling the levers of my, my life. What, what kind of stuff happens when a Christian sort of shrinks down the, the lordship authority of Jesus? Well, that Christian doesn't have peace. Uh, that Christian doesn't have confidence, and that Christian doesn't see progress. Now, now we, we're, we're tuned, I think, most of us to know that's no-go. That's not a good idea. We don't want, we don't want to get into it. We do. We, it happens, but we don't want it to happen that we begin to forget that Jesus is actually in charge of us. Because when we forget that, our peace evaporates our confidence evaporates, and we don't see progress. Now, uh, I think we know that, but what happens when the church forgets that Jesus is the real ruler, the actual king of the world? Oh, we've forgotten that. And the results are absolutely the same. We lose our confidence, we lose our peace, and we see no progress. And what Peter is saying is exactly what he said in chapter 2 and what it says in Psalm 110 and Hebrews and 1 Corinthians, and that is, is that Jesus really is reigning over both the individual and the universe, and whatever Jesus reigns over is getting renewed. End of story. Jesus always makes progress on that which he has bought with his blood. And as an individual, you need to be reminded Jesus is a good king of your life. And you're this little kingdom that really no one really wants, you know. It's like, it's like um, you know, it's like, oh, good. Jesus is, you know, he got my little kingdom. But the thing is, is that over time, his ruling of your little kingdom will lead to flourishing, measurable flourishing, what Galatians calls the fruit of the spirit, for instance. Because King Jesus has come into your life, your life is going to change. 
And the Bible says the exact same thing about Jesus' headship over the world itself. He is the king of the world. And he must reign there in heaven on the throne until what? Progress, 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 progress. All of his enemies succumb to his headship. Hebrews 2 says, at this present moment, we don't see everything that's in subjection to him. But I'll tell you this, we see a lot more in subjection to him now than we did 2,000 years ago. So Peter's got this amazingly simple and profound idea, the truth, that Jesus, when he reigns over an individual, brings refreshing. And Jesus, when he reigns over the world, brings restoration. That's why Isaiah 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Here's the trick right here. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus is reigning in heaven on the throne over all things as he progressively redeems the world he created. This is a scandalous thought. This really is a scandalous thought because for years we've been told that we need to progressively get God out of places, right? We've been told, well, we've got to get God out of, out, out of politics. And we've got to get God out of sexuality. And we've got to get God out of the workplace. And perhaps you'll notice a trend here. God keeps uh, shrinking. The authority of Jesus over practical stuff keeps shrinking while the authority of those who tell us to get Jesus out of the thing keeps expanding. You see, the world is fine with our operative definition of Jesus as king because what most of us mean when we say Jesus is king is like Queen Elizabeth, a figurehead, something that looks good on a plate on your wall. But the world would absolutely freak if we started meaning when we say Jesus is king like Richard the Lionheart. An actual ruler over all things. Somehow, some words have been inverted, confused. Jesus is standing with Pilate, and Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And somehow we've taken that to mean my kingdom is not for this world. But it most assuredly is for this world so much so that he taught his believers when he taught his disciples to pray he said our father who art in heaven thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven christmas is the moment in which this headship is revealed this supreme and universal dominion over all things is revealed. So let's talk about how this works. 
How does the restoration of the world and the refreshment of the individual meet so that Jesus becomes visibly king over all things? Well, first of all, I should say, this happens just because Jesus is the perfect ruler. Uh, I was going through uh, some quotes that I'd uh, grabbed in previous years, and I found one from the time that I read the novel Dune, which is a great novel. Listen to this quote. A world is supported by four things. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, and the valor of the brave. But all of these are nothing without a ruler who knows the art of ruling. Well, first of all, every bit of that's Jesus. But I would point you to say, I would point you to the Old Testament and say that almost everything about this quote showed up in the Old Testament. The learning of the wise, that's in there. The justice of the great, that's in there. The prayers of the righteous, check. The valor of the brave, check. But all of it meant nothing, really, until the king of kings took his proper place on the throne over all things. And Christmas is a celebration of the coming of the king of kings, the one king who knows the art of ruling. And he knows this art because he is the admirable conjunction of all of the excellencies one could need to rule this particular world. It's so interesting that our minds are immediately triggered and sparked by symmetry. That our whole understanding of beauty is related to proportionality. That physics itself appears to be a dance, a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers kind of deal. That all of it's this give and take and tension and symmetry and balance. And it looks as if to me, not only from the scriptures, but also from reason, that this world was made to be ruled by someone like Jesus. And there's only someone like Jesus. There's only one someone like Jesus. This world, our world, has been yearning for a leader who is perfectly strong and perfectly loving. Perfectly strong enough to say, with complete authority, no one takes my life from me. And perfectly loving enough with complete compassion to say, but I lay it down willingly. The world is different because Jesus has laid down his life and in laying down his life has conquered. Revelation 5 says, conquered. And now he reigns. Everything from this point, everything from the point of Christmas on is a sort of slow crawl into spring. That's, uh, that would be, to put it in Narnia terms, the winter is breaking, the spring is coming. Yesterday, I think, was the shortest day of the year, often directly connected to Christmas. That's the idea, folks. It all gets brighter from this day when Jesus invaded our world and took what was created by him and for him and began to rule. So one of the reasons why 
this is all going to work is just because Jesus is really, really the ruler for which this world was created. But, but let me give you an example of kind of what that looks like practically. At the beginning of uh, chapter 8, you've got this story of a man who was lame since birth, and he's healed. Now, in that story, if you were just to read it slowly, let it kind of marinate, you'd see, you'd see Jesus, the king over all things, at work at multiple levels. So Jesus, the king of the world, uh, let's think of him as or- uh, orchestrating a, a huge symphony. And he is at work in that story in the common grace of the friends who took that man every day to the temple. And he's at work in the common grace of law-abiding Jews who believed it was appropriate right to give alms to poor on their way to pray to God. Jesus is at work in those things. Jesus is at work at the level of divine providence in which he causes Peter and John to cross paths with this man who was lame since birth. And then Jesus is at work in the miraculous healing. He's actually involved in the very laws of nature. And he's over those laws and he is undoing the curse. We see him literally undoing the curse there. But Jesus is also at work in Peter's proclamation of the gospel. And he's at work in the hearts of all those he saves as a result of the gospel being saved. It's as if Jesus, the king of the universe, is conducting a massive symphony and he's turning all of these different instruments and instrumentalists into a single tune. And that tune celebrates his divine glory. That's what Jesus is doing today. In Lenexa, Kansas, and everywhere else in the world, he rules the world. C.S. Lewis said this way, The Son of God became a man so that men might become sons of God. Now remember, I'm asking right now, practically, how does Jesus do this? How does he bring refreshment to the individual and restoration to the world? How is he doing that as he reigns both in our lives and also on the throne, the cosmic throne at the right hand of the Father? Well, I think the short answer to that is that he turns men who were bankrupt and impotent into a kingdom of priests. He transforms human beings into people that possess and partake in what Peter refers to as the divine nature. And he gets a hold of people, dirty, dingy, clueless people like us, the weak the people who are nothing. He takes us, he refreshes us with his spirit, and suddenly we actually have some level of productivity in him, of course, to do what he has called us to do all along, which is what? What what did God put human beings on the earth to do? To rule and subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiplying. And suddenly, when Jesus meets us and he begins to reign over our lives, we become fruitful, at least a little more fruitful, and then a little bit more fruitful, and then a little bit more fruitful because his reign has progressive results in our sanctification. And slowly over time, one of the amazing things that happens is that we start showing tiny little glimmers of the same so-called balance that we see in Jesus and our 
perhaps natural kindness. Some of you are very, you know, some of you got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, credits on the kindness side, but not many credits on the courage side. And as you walk with Jesus, as he brings refreshing into your life, you become more symmetrical. And the love is brought next to the truth. And some of you, this is the ones that are going to want to talk about the deep state on Christmas Day. Uh, some of you have lots of truth and not very much kindness. And I hope you've seen, as, as I've seen, that's a highly dysfunctional way to live. You will not get what you need out of this world being only one of these things. You are not a fruitful person when you are an asymmetrical person. But when you walk with Jesus, he brings refreshing through his spirit into your life. The other side of the equation begins to emerge and we become men and women of the soil. Jesus put it this way in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How is Jesus restoring the world by bringing refreshment to the individual? He's doing that because when he restores and refreshes the individual, they start bearing fruit. And that fruit increases... And creates, recreates, a new and better creation progressively over time. The people who are united in Christ become fruitful creational stewards. They become like a many Adams and many Eves, but, but, the, but the good kind. So last week we said that, you know, if you've ever really thought about this problem of balance, you've realized, man, I, I can't accomplish anything until I... Learn to balance my strengths and my weaknesses. Until I, learn to, until I learn to be a whole person, I cannot get this thing done. And that whole person being comes through abiding in Christ when the, when the fruit of the Spirit emerge. And the promise of this passage is that just as Jesus is perfectly symmetrical, and just as Jesus excels at ruling this earth because he is both strong and loving, so all those who are united in him become fruitful stewards of the world he created and of the little piece of the world he's placed each one of us in. The idea is that his uh, divine excellencies are contagious. You get the refreshing of the Lord when you repent and turn in him. And suddenly your work which may be pronounced mostly by overrest and laziness, now has a new kind of rest and industry is added to it. Or maybe your work is pronounced with lots of hustle and no peace. But now the king of kings is present, the perfect one. And that hustle gets uh, subordinated rightly into worship. And you also realize my identity is not in my work. You know, you're in friendships right now. And some of you have friendships in which you are unquestionably, and no one would ask, are you compassionate, kind, and loving to your friends? And the answer would be absolutely. But do you tell them the truth about their souls? 
No. So we've got an imbalance. We've got high compassion and low courage. But as Jesus walks with you and rules in you and refreshes you, things change. Things change. The way we raise children, this, is, this seems to be one of the most pronounced and agreed upon ideas within what does it mean to be a Christian. It's simply this. This perfect, balanced, uh, this balanced symmetry of authority and tenderness is expressed in Jesus and catches on to Christian parents. And there ain't nobody in the world who would reject a mom and a dad who have strong strength and love. It's a beautiful and exceedingly rare thing. And it comes from Jesus. So how does Jesus making all things new in his rule, both individually and cosmically, well, he does that by changing individuals. It's always been his plan. Look at verse 25 in Acts 3. Peter says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You are the offspring and you will be a blessing to this earth. So, let's, let's say it like we believe it now. I'll say it for us. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and let heaven and nature sing. Why? Because he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the light of his righteousness, strength, and the wonders of his love. Let me pray. Gracious God, what an amazing, true story we are wrapped in right now. What a glorious, glorious future. What a good present to live under the authority and rule of King Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would not neglect your headship and authority over us individually. That we would, minute by minute, day by day, bend our knee to the Lord of Lords and say, with joy, your will be done, not mine. Lord, let us not as a church, as the church, neglect the other side of the coin. You do not only reign over individuals you reign over the universe over all things and whatever you reign will surely be restored for jesus christmas is our coronation day in some respects as we celebrate the coming of the ruler for which we have 
always longed or at least needed. Please give us grace to see you high and lifted up and meek, humble, and lowly. A bruised reed you will not break. You are kind, you are true, you are strong, you are loving. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.